This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the murder of Rona Duncan. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. I'm not sure when I first heard about the murder of 16-year-old Rona Duncan, but I do remember that it was through my daughter and that she was still quite young. We lived across the road from Sean and Peggy Maples. Our kids are around the same age and our daughters are still best friends. In 1976, Sean Maples was Rona Duncan's boyfriend, and he was with her on the night that she was murdered. For a while there, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had him firmly in their sights. A polygraph and his DNA taken decades later cleared Sean completely, but 45 years later, Rona's cold case, one of 17 unsolved murders in North Vancouver, remains a stain on this tight-knit community. Every year, Rona's high school friends get together to remember her and try and solve a murder. Some of them believe they know who did it. It was July 16th, 1976, the night of Margaret's 17th birthday party. Margaret was allowed to invite 20 friends to share a quiet celebration with her parents, brothers and sisters in their North Vancouver home. Margaret was on the student council at Carson Graham Secondary and had just finished grade 11 in a class of over 750 students who came from several feeder schools, including Balmoral, Sutherland and Hamilton. Margaret's guest list came almost entirely from friends she'd known at Balmoral, a few brought dates from other schools. Although Sean Maples went to Delbrook High, he knew Margaret from Balmoral and he'd brought Rona Duncan to the party that night. Sean and Rona had been on several dates before the night of the party, and Sean's friend Owen Parry was dating Rona's friend Marion Bogues. It wasn't long before Margaret's quiet celebration started to get out of control. Dozens of North Vancouver teenagers who were hanging out at Ambleside Beach and at Mayon Park heard about a house party and crashed the East Queen's Road house. Underage teens arriving with booze poured through the front door. Others scrambled over the back fence through the neighbour's yard. A plate that one of the family members had brought back from an overseas trip was knocked off the wall and smashed. Drinks were spilled on the carpet and teens perched themselves on the stereo system and soon overran the house. Margaret's parents called police. It was supposed to be a celebration for Margaret and it turned out to be a really horrible mess and something she'd never forget. It was one of those parties that word got around really quickly and everybody came. She didn't know most of the people. When the police arrived sometime after midnight, the party crashes scattered. As bad as a mess in a house appeared, it was nothing compared to the news that came a day later. Margaret got a phone call from a friend who said that a girl from a school 
One who had been at her party just hours before was dead. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Sean, Rona, Marion and Owen left the party around 1am. It was a warm summer night and they took their time walking in the direction of all four of their homes. They stopped at the District Hall on West Queens. Owen and Sean lived up the hill. Rona and Marion lived down the hill in the Hamilton area. The girls wanted to walk home by themselves and talk about the night. It was an easy walk down Jones Avenue. This is from an interview I did with Sean in 2015 and replayed with his permission. I'd met her through a friend of mine who was dating her best friend, and so we started seeing each other. So we went to different schools. I lived up in the top of Delbrook area. She was from down towards Marine Drive. So she went to Hamilton and then to Carson. I did Braemar, Balmoral, and then I went to Delbrook. My buddy went to Carson, and that's kind of how I had met her was through my buddy. Really, we only dated, I want to say, about a handful of times, maybe six or seven. And the, the night she was killed, you know, we had been together and we had, you know, been in a party. And You don't remember what the night was like? Was it hot or cold? Yeah, it was a nice, warm summer night. Um, mm-hmm. I remember walking around in, I believe, shorts and a T-shirt. Can you remember anything like that, the music or the choice of drink at the party? We were probably drinking beer, or that's what I drank at that age. Music would have been typical 70s, I gather. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, your Rolling Stones, your Deep Purple. You asked me the other day about, you know, how did you feel, that type of thing. Mm. Um, I felt, I'm going to say, kind of guilty because I normally walk women home and because she didn't want me to walk her home. Marianne Vogue, who was her, her best friend, who's uh, someone who is a very big and powerful woman, you know, said, oh, no, no don't worry about it, I'll take care of her, who just lived a couple blocks away was going to walk her home and then and I guess really Rona to actually dismiss Marion said oh yeah no problem I can I can make the last couple blocks by myself and never made it. Marion who was nicknamed the train played on Carson Graham's girls football team. Rona and Marion stopped and talked for a while and then parted company near Marion's home at the corner of Larson Road and Wolf Street. Rona disappeared into the darkness of Larson Road turned south on Berwick Avenue I was at the intersection at West 15th, the quiet residential street where she lived, when someone stopped her. She was about 100 feet from a streetlight and inside of the safety of her home. Around 3am, Joyce Hosomar, a neighbour of the Duncans, woke from a deep sleep. She thought she heard a man and a woman arguing on the street near the house and she woke her husband, William, asking him to go out and investigate. William got out of bed and shouted, What's going on here? The arguing stopped and all was quiet. William later thought that it sounded like a lover's quarrel. But when he looked out, he couldn't see anything. And it wasn't unusual to hear young people's voices late at night on the weekends. Thinking nothing of it, 
he went back to bed and fell asleep. None of the other neighbours reported seeing or hearing anything. By 4am, Rona was dead. She'd been raped and strangled. The next morning, Andre Verbowski was on her way to work when she saw Rona's body lying in the tall grass in front of a garage in a lane off Berwick. The morning sun was shining on the girl's blonde hair. Andre called to William and Joyce Hoselmar, the owners of the corner house, and Joyce walked up to the body and grabbed her arm. It's a girl, she told the others. She saw that Rona had been stripped naked from the waist down. Police secured the murder scene and the body was taken to the morgue. Frederick and Roy Duncan woke the next morning to find that Rona had not come home that night. Hearing the commotion, they went outside to see what was happening, only to receive the heartbreaking news that the girl who was found in the lane was most likely their daughter. The Duncans had lived in their 1912 Arts and Craft Heritage House on West 15th Avenue since 1967. The upper middle class neighbourhood backed onto a private woodland setting at the end of a cul-de-sac and was comprised of established houses and long-time neighbours. A chartered accountant from Ireland, Frederick Duncan was a secretary controller at Pacific Press when they moved to the West 15th Avenue home. And in 1975, he'd taken a job as vice president for Jones Tent and Awning in Vancouver. Rona was the oldest of four girls in a family that neighbours described as close. Neighbours said Rona was a lovely pretty girl who was nice to everyone and seemed popular among her friends. Thelma Riddle lived across the street from the Duncans and had watched the four girls grow up. They were always in their yard and up and down the street, and like everyone else, she was shocked that something like this could happen in this otherwise quiet neighbourhood and dead-end street. North Vancouver's Don Curl and his brother Gord went to school with Rona, and the three of them had often hung out. I asked Don to tell me about Rona, what she was into and, and what she was like. How did you know Rona? Well, she went to school with my brother and his friend. We got to know her like a little sister. She was a sweetie. That's what she would have said hi to anybody. But she would have given anybody the time of day. Diligent. She went to school. She wasn't a skipper out her and, and I would say fairly academic. I remember I was in grade 12. I was like big brother. And she was giving me shit for missing too many classes. <laughs> you should pay attention and you've only got six months to go. And, you know, what are you, you going to do with your life? But she was a pretty level-headed kid, I would say. Do you know what she wanted to do after school? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. I would have said she would have been really good with kids. Bubbly, cute as a button, probably had more friends in high school than anybody that I ever knew. You know, she would have known the jocks, she would have known the greaseballs, she would have known the, the smart kids, you know, all walks of life. My two sisters went to school with her younger sisters. So my brother and I, we made a point on Christmas Eve to go up and say hi to the family. And then as her little sisters got older, they looked just like Rona, and it was, it was, it was hard. It mm. was really hard. Sean Maples found out about his girlfriend's murder when his friend Owen called him the next day. The shocked teenagers went to Marion's house and tried to figure out what had happened, if there was something they could have done differently. Rona, he says, was a small girl, about five foot four, thin, and weighing maybe 110 pounds. When Sean arrived home later that morning, there was a police car outside his door. The RCMP had bagged and taken away the clothes he wore the night before, and he was interviewed that night. Did the police suspect? 
Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, to help them concentrate on, I volunteered to take a polygraph at the time. And then last time they reopened things, and they had DNA evidence on file, so I volunteered to give a DNA sample just to, like I said, narrow the field, so to speak. Right. That must have been fairly recently, though, was it? got a letter. I think it's basically, I think it was 2006. Yeah, it was when they they kind of reopened things and a new investigator was assigned and they were taking a new look at things. And obviously they didn't match anyone's DNA. Uh, well, once again, uh, they can only take it voluntarily. And I know there was a few people that strongly objected what their motives were for doing that. I don't know. So do you have any ideas of who it was? My friends and I have talked over the years and, and speculated. And yeah, but I'm not going <laughs> to announce that publicly. As Sergeant Mel Tate, who headed up the investigation for the RCMP, told a reporter at the time, they were unsure if it was someone who she knew and was going to meet, or some freak who happened to see her walking home alone. Police questioned Sean on Rona's insistence to walk home with Marion and asked him if she could have been meeting someone later that night. That seemed really unlikely. It was much more likely that the murderer was someone who had attended the party and followed the girls or someone who saw the girls walking home and targeted Rona, a crime of opportunity. Uh, on the night of the party, you didn't notice anyone watching her strangely or any, you know, sort of undue attention or anything like that? No, no. That, yeah, I remember having those conversations with the police and nothing, nothing that uh, seemed out of sorts. I really was kind of focused on one person. We were just getting to know each other, so I, I was kind of focusing my attention on her, not on right. really my surroundings. What, what kind of girl was she? very down-to-earth, basic person, at least as far as what I could assess. Yeah, like I said, very cute. I'm curious, how has all this impacted your life? I mean, you were really young. It's got to have been horrible. Um, for a while there, I felt I was kind of a very unlucky uh, person to be around. But uh, once again, I mean, it was beyond my control. It's a long, long time ago. It was uh, a very kind of dramatic event to go through. All young people, you're... You rebound. You kind of dust yourself off and keep going. While I was in the research phase of writing Cold Case Vancouver, I'd posted about Rona's murder on Facebook. A few days later, a woman contacted me who had been at the party that night and knew Rona a little from the neighbourhood. She was really nervous about being identified even after all these years, and I agreed to use a pseudonym, Sue Penner, for the book, and I'll continue using that name for this podcast. At the time, Sue was a 16-year-old Argyle secondary student and she'd crashed the party with her boyfriend and their friends. She remembers talking to Rona in the living room. Sue says her attention was drawn to an older guy in the room, maybe 20 or 21, who was a friend of her boyfriend's older brother and just didn't seem to fit in with a largely teenage crowd. After the police closed down the party, she left with a group of friends. She remembers the older guy from the party trailing behind them. Later, she says, she saw Rona and another girl walking ahead of them, and then Rona walking down Larson Road alone. She told me, I can still remember how dark that road was, and I saw Rona begin to run. What idiots we were, letting her go alone in the dark. Sue says that her mother was away, and she was staying with her grandfather that night. He was angry with her for coming home so late, but he never told her mother, and neither did Sue. Sue says she did call the police a few days after the murder. The Chena friends had seen Rona walking home after the party 
and that she'd tell him any details. But nobody ever called her back, and she didn't pursue it. She told me that she felt so guilty about this that she never even told her husband. She always thought they would have been able to catch the person. I did pass along Sue's information to the RCMP a few years ago. I didn't hear anything back from them, which isn't unusual. I just hope this means that they checked out this older guy that Sue saw at the party and later walking behind them and either cleared him through DNA or some other means. Margaret, the girl who had her party crashed, also feels some guilt. Police interviewed the family the next day, trying to come up with a guest list for the party. But as she told them, she didn't know most of the people who were there. On her request, I've agreed not to use her last name. She told me that if only she'd been able to remember more about that night, they may have been able to solve Rona's murder. Police were also investigating a connection between Rona's death and an attempted assault of a woman in North Vancouver a few days before. There was also the attempted abduction of a 16-year-old girl just hours before the attack on Rona Duncan. At around midnight, a man had grabbed a girl from behind in an attempt to force her into his car. That was near 3rd Street and St Andrews Avenue. According to police, he clamped a hand over her mouth. The girl freed herself by biting the man's hand and then screaming. He released her and sped off in a late-model two-door red car with a white interior and a black hardtop. The girl described him as a 30-year-old male, about six feet tall, weighing between 150 and 170 pounds, with a slim build and a pointy chin. His blonde hair was neat and police thought it might have been a wig. RCMP Constable Smith speculated to a reporter at the time that it was possible that the assailant didn't get what he was after and so continued to cruise the streets. Just a few days before Rona's murder, a 27-year-old North Vancouver woman was assaulted at 21st Street and Mahon Avenue shortly after getting off a bus around midnight. Police say her assailant opened his pants, made an obscene suggestion, knocked her to the ground and tried to pull down her underwear. As he tried to jump on her, she pushed him away, kicked him and screamed. She told police that attacker pleaded with her, don't scream, please don't scream. When a light came on at one of the houses, he ran off. The woman told a reporter that even though she'd screamed in that quiet residential area, no one had bothered to come to her assistance. The next day, she said, she called on the neighbours whose homes bordered the narrow grassy strip where she was attacked to ask why they didn't respond to her screams. All they could say was, we're sorry, she told the reporter. The woman said police told her she would have had a better chance to attract attention if she'd screamed fire, because that cry would have made a stronger appeal to the homeowner's self-interest. The young woman described her attacker as in his early 20s, with a slim build, around 5 foot 10, and weighing around 150 pounds. He had dark brown shoulder-length hair and a light brown moustache, and he was wearing jeans and a jean jacket. The description was similar to another given of a young man seen near Wolf Street and Larson Road around the time of Rona's death. Police felt he may have lived in that area. After interviewing more than 40 people, on July 22nd, five days after Rona Duncan's murder, 
the RCMP announced that they'd formed a special squad to coordinate the investigation of several serious crimes around the province. Police were searching for a serial killer. The six-man squad formed under Sergeant Arnie Nyland would check for similarities in the unsolved sex slayings of at least 12 women. The victims ranged from 9 to 26 years old and at least five were sexually assaulted before they were murdered. One murder in particular caught their attention. Brenda Kersher, 16 of Langley, had been raped and killed by a blow to the head on July 3rd, just two weeks before Rona's death. Both girls were at parties immediately prior to their murders, but a check of the guest list didn't reveal any common connections with this or the other murders. Brenda's murder was eventually solved and her killer sent to jail. The 1974 rape and murder of 15-year-old Robin Gates of Port Coquitlam was also eventually solved. Others, though, like the 1975 murders of 22-year-old Debbie Rowe of Langley and Barbara Ann LaRocque, also 22 and also raped and strangled, as well as 17-year-old Susan Innes Muscamp, who was found near Fort Langley, her body too badly decomposed to determine cause of death, remain unsolved. Police prepared a list of 172 males that included all of Rona's friends and acquaintances and all the men who were in that area at the time of the murder or had a past history of sexual assault. They conducted numerous polygraph examinations, interviewed dozens of suspects, but remained stumped. Sean Maples, who is an accountant and still lives in North Vancouver, says police have contacted him three times over the last four decades, and he says that Rona Duncan's file has been reopened twice that he's aware of. How many times has it been reopened, do you know? I've been contacted, I think, three times over the years, I think. Uh, at least twice, I would say, that's been reopened. The first time, I, I think they called a couple of us in and re-interviewed us and, to see if anything might have drawn. You know, they were looking at the case and confirming statements and that type of thing. And then the second time was when they had DNA evidence and wanted to get voluntary samples from people. At the time of the murder, I had cooperated and did a polygraph test, test at the time. And, you know, like I said, I wanted to make sure that they channeled their resources in the right area so that, you know, they could solve this. So then when they contacted me, they said, oh, we're reopening the investigation. This is, there was uh, DNA evidence found at the scene. Would you be willing to uh, provide us a blood sample? I said, sure. And I know because I had a phone call from, there were several people that, you know, the RCMP were contacting at the time. And so they had been contacted before me. So, so I guess maybe they were doing it alphabetically. I don't know. That was in 1998, when advances in DNA technology made it possible for police to obtain a DNA profile of Rona's attacker from exhibits seized during the investigation. Some of the suspects were never found, some had died, and a few refused. Under current law, police cannot get a DNA warrant to rule out suspects, even in a murder case. Given that sexual predators are highly likely to reoffend and that several of the suspects in the Rona Duncan investigation had criminal pasts that included sexual attacks on women, it's not surprising that they would refuse to hand over their DNA. Sean and other friends who attended Margaret's party that night 
have met many times over the years to discuss a case. They believe the murderer may have been someone at the party with them. But police seem no closer to solving Rona's murder than they were four decades ago. They've interviewed hundreds of witnesses and possible suspects, performed polygraphs on the higher priority suspects, and tested their DNA. The case remains boxed up inside the cold file room, where every now and then it's taken out, dusted off, reopened and re-examined. In 2003, Sergeant Jerry Webb told North Vancouver's Outlook newspaper that more than two-thirds of the subjects had been cleared through the DNA comparison. New to the case at that time, Webb had dug through the eight boxes of evidence that included tip sheets, police officers' notes, crime scene photographs and an autopsy report. Sergeant Webb told the reporter that the men they viewed as suspects would continue to be contacted to voluntarily come to the North Vancouver RCMP detachment for a DNA test. If the DNA is not a match, the samples will be destroyed, he said. He added that the present focus of the investigation was to continue with DNA collection from outstanding suspects. When I checked in again with the RCMP this month, 18 years later, nothing had changed, or at least nothing that they'd tell me. Since there's obviously DNA from the killer that they'd used to check against the DNA that they got from the 172-plus males in the area, I'm hopeful that this could be used to build a composite picture of the suspect that some of Rona's friends may then recognise. Even better, if there was a large enough DNA profile, perhaps it could be sent to a genealogical database in the US, like GEDmatch, which has caught and convicted several murderers, including the Golden State Killer, in 2018. I truly believe that Rona Duncan's murder can, and must, be solved. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Cold Case Canada is based on original research that I conducted for my book, Cold Case Vancouver. If you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and please subscribe to the podcast. You can find out more information, photos and show notes on my website, evelazarus.com. I'm going to give the last word to best-selling author Tara Moss. Tara is a host and writer for a new true crime podcast called The Man in the Balaclava, and it's available through Audible. In the late 1970s, an attacker nicknamed the Balaclava Rapist began terrifying small-town communities along Australia's east coast. And let me be clear, this was terrifying for women in those communities. No one, absolutely no one feels safe. Women didn't feel safe, men didn't feel safe. The case turned into one of the country's biggest police investigations at the time. I think we interviewed, I don't know, thousands of motorcyclists. We were tasked with going to knock on the doors of everybody who owned a motorbike. We got blood samples from, from so many people. In spite of a massive interstate task force and the promise of a $50,000 reward, to this day, no one has ever been caught or convicted for these crimes. Together with journalist and reporter Mark Whitaker, who's also become a bit obsessed with this story. What kind of age are we looking for, do you think, Mark? We would have been 
Around 20 at the time. Yeah. We've been traveling across the country, dodging a global pandemic, and tracking down the people involved to explore why this case has never been solved. Everyone who has tried to get to the bottom of this has just hit the same brick wall. We want to find out whether it's possible, as some people believe, that after evading justice 40 years ago, the balaclava rapist went on to commit some of the most devastating murders in Australia's recent history. I was walking along the high tide mark, uh, just there over the, uh, the first row of sand dunes, I found the murder scene. My dad had to go to the Tweed Heads Hospital and identify the two bodies, and that must have been just shattering for him to see his daughter in that state. He was pointing the gun at us and told us to lie down. I, I knew, at, certainly at that point, that we were in trouble. They had their heads covered, they were bound with cable ties, and they were executed uh, with a single shot to the crown of the head. Could one of the country's worst serial offenders have been hiding in plain sight for decades?